Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by handweaving.net, the comprehensive weaving website with more than 75,000 historic and modern weaving drafts, documents, and powerful digital tools that put creativity in your hands. Now it's simple to design, color, update, and save your drafts. Handweaving.net's mission is to preserve the rich heritage of handweaving and pass it down to you. Visit handweaving.net and sign up for a subscription today. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Ann Merrow. Sincere Sheep is one of my favorite yarn and fiber companies. Brooks Innes works with natural dyes, carefully designed yarns, and locally sourced fiber, and I'm always drawn to her booth. We talked earlier this year at the end of a long day at a fiber festival. So the name of your company is Sincere Sheep. Yes. Tell me about that name. Like, How did that come to be and what does it mean to you? Um, so many years ago, before I started Sincere Sheep, I was taking primarily, at least initially, spinning classes, though it then evolved to spinning and dyeing classes um, at a studio in Albany, California, and um, from a woman by the name of Claudia Hofberg. Um, and she had a great group of women, actually at that time it was primarily women, um, that would come regularly. So it was like, you really got to know your fellow students. It was like a cohort that became very close. And um, so, and we would take class after class and some of them would be weekly classes that you'd be meeting every Thursday night. And some of them were one-offs. And so we just really got to know each other. And one woman in the class, you know, pre CSA becoming really a big thing, even in food, but certainly like pre it becoming anything in fiber. And so what she was doing is she was like sending a monthly amount to this shepherdess who had a flock. And then she would get monthly missives back about the sheep that she was finding essentially like financially supporting, you know, um, and which it was great. And they were, you know, really kind of very genuine, and I think the sheep's name was Lincoln, or at least in my mind now, the sheep's name, name is Lincoln. And um, so she would get, you know, sort of monthly reports about how Lincoln was doing and what was going on on the farm. And so and so she then would bring in these monthly letters and share with us. And in one of these monthly letters, the shepherdess said that Lincoln was a very sincere sheep. And so that phrase sort of stuck with me, but also then, you know, after shearing, she got sent the fleece because that's essentially what she had been paying, you know, all along for was to to get all of Lincoln's fleece post shearing. And so it was all of the, it was this group of women, you know, standing around this unrolled greasy fleece that was fragrant um, in the way that only greasy fleeces can be. And, you know, sort of everybody had their, their fingers kind of massaging and enjoying and soaking up the lanolin and kind of the whole experience of this fresh fleece that was that she'd gotten sent you know and it and it unrolled fleeces take up you know six foot tables plus so it had like kind of rolled off the edges and everybody just was really enjoying it and um 
And, you know, it was that that phenomenon of people kind of remembered that phrase and they were saying, you know, Lincoln was indeed a, a sincere sheep. And I, it just, it, it always sort of stuck with me. And, you know, now I, I get asked a lot, like, what is a sincere sheep or, you know, what's an insincere sheep? And because people can't help themselves. And I, you know, I, <laughs> I tell people, I'm like, you know, sheep are really good at being sheep. And I think that they're, it's, you know, hard for them to be insincere, you know, <laughs> to be honest. I said, you know, maybe a wolf in chief clothing, that's an insincere sheep. But yeah, sheep are really good at being sheep. And we're really happy they're good at being sheep because that's what we want them to be. But yeah, that, so that's where it came from. But it kind of, I think it's, it's really sweet and it's kind of silly. And, but it also, like, I, for some reason, it just sort of encapsulated a little bit of what I was trying to do, even, you know, from the very beginning of like, you know, ha- having yarn and spinning fiber that were, you know, sort of representative and very close to the farm and close to the sheep and, um, and putting that information on the label and, and then also with the natural dyes supporting all of that. And so, yeah, that's how I ended up with Sincere Sheep as a name. That's something I've noticed about your labels is that you often, maybe it's not like a whole missive about the particular sheep, but you often tell a story of where the fiber comes from. That's been the goal all along. In the very beginning, actually, I was doing it on such a small scale that I put, I could put the sheep's name on it. So like, you know, it would be, you know, fiber from Buddha, that would be the name of the sheep. And then I would also put the farm and the farm's location on it. I still do that on my spinning fiber, because um, those I do fiber from a single sheep. So like now, right now, I think I have I, my most recent one that I just got back is from a sheep named Fizz from Peggy Agnew and she's Red Creek Farms. And so, yeah, I, that very much has always been my goal is to like give people as much of that sort of transparency as possible. And so like on my website too, I have information about where the yarn was spun. There's information about always about the farm or ranch name and the location of that farm or ranch. You're also choosing yarns and blends from a wide variety of different I guess I would say sheep first, but, you know, sheep, alpacas, all sorts of things like that. And you sort of pull it all together. How do you think about that? Um, So I, besides being a knitter, I'm also a spinner and I weave too and um, crochet a little bit. But um, so I'm always considering it from those perspectives, sort of the end user. And so I was introduced to Korma Wool when I was learning how to spin, actually. And um it wasn't super popular then and it wasn't very well known, but I just really loved the hand of it. I felt like, you know, in terms of softness, it is pretty comparable to, you know, Merino, but it just has this sort of um, buttery, velvety quality to it um, and a lot of elasticity, a lot of body. And I, so I just really enjoyed it as a hand spinner. And so I wanted to translate that and give that experience to um, my customers. And so as a knitter, or crochet or, or even to weave with it, you could have that experience. And so I try to pick sheep breeds in particular, and then yeah, do blends that are that are interesting, and really enjoyable for the for my customers. And also, like I am thinking about long, longevity. So going back to like the Cormo 
we could have that spun with a lot less twist and it would feel softer. Like you would really get to feel how soft that wool is. But the reality is, is it would not hold up as well. And so we put a little bit more twist in both the single and the ply twist in order to make sure that it lasts longer. It's going to hold up to abrasion better than it would if it was a lower twist yarn. So even though you sacrifice a little bit on the softness, to me, it's worth it for the longevity um, because it is still soft and it's still next to the skin soft for most people. And, and it's still really enjoyable to knit or crochet or even weave with. I mean, obviously you have to take the elasticity into account, but the final product is really delicious, you know? So um, I'm kind of, I'm always looking at it from that perspective and trying to like bring in my experience as a spinner, as a hand spinner into like when I'm creating and you know, looking for yarns, like what, what would I want and what's interesting and what's available to hand spinners that's not generally available to knitters. One of the things I notice in your booth, but also walking around is this series of tote bags that have really distinctive illustrations of sheep on mm -hmm. them and all sorts of different varieties. Have you noticed that more knitters and consumers are interested in individual breeds of sheep? For sure. It was really obvious this year, getting back to shows, um, I had a lot of people specifically say to me that they were interested in non-superwash yarns. So that's obviously more generic than than breed specific. But, you know, for people even to be making that distinction is pretty notable. Um, and then I would say, yes, that there is um, it. Didn't, it's not just this year, but um, over the past few years, there has been a you know, that there has been an increased interest and just recognition that there's more than Merino out there. But I still get questions about like, oh, what what does Cormo mean? Um, what is Rambouillet? Like, you know, that people don't always recognize what those are. So there's still, you know, a lot of opportunities for education out there. And people are excited to learn. And I've bought through your website, but I also know that coming to see you at shows and festivals is a place where people not only learn a lot about the fiber, but also get that sort of immersion in your booth. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love to teach. And so that doesn't stop when I'm outside of the classroom. Um, we're all a community and um, we all benefit from knowing more. And it's really exciting to get to share that information with other people. So speaking of community and bringing different fiber properties together, I'm actually knitting a sweater right now out of something called Coastal, which is a yarn that you and Jean DeCoster of Elemental Effects mm -hmm. developed. Yep. How did you guys come together to develop a yarn? Well, so we've known each other for a really long time because um, she started her business like kind of at the same time as I did. And um, she also is breed specific. You know, that is her focus. Her focus has always been um, domestically sourced and spun. And so we decided to make the Cormo yarns together. And part of that is because in terms of manufacturing, we can leverage, you know, a improved like price point by going in together and having this yarn custom made for us. And so she uses synthetic dyes and I use natural dyes. And so we look at it as, you know, a collaboration that works for us in terms of that we can buy together and support each other. But also, um, our customers get this increased range of, of colors. Like the color palette is like, you know, double the size because there's two of us using it, but with very different dyes and dye techniques. She sometimes designs, um, but we also have different relationships with different designers. And so that has generated more patterns for that, that yarn. And so we feel like it really, you know, sort of benefits everybody that we work together. But then 
we have been talking almost 10 years about wanting to do a blend, a cellulose wool blend or a cellulose wool and silk blend. And some of it was because we both live in California and she lives down in Southern California. So it makes sense in terms of a yarn that's going to make garments that we can wear year round. So um, it was kind of driven by the fact that we live on the West coast and we live in a warmer climate. And, um, and then she also is a hand spinner. And so her process is to quite literally measure out if it's going to be this percentage of wool and this percentage, if she's adding silk, like weighing it out, putting it through the drum carter or hand carting and then spinning up samples. And so for her, that's really the way that she just processes all of it. And, um, and so yeah, it was like on our wish list. It's something we talked a lot about. We were able to come up with this blend and and then and be able to start dyeing it. So it was like it was sort of this confluence of, oh, finally, we just had sort of the right partner in in the mill. And it's it's Meridian Mill in um, South Carolina. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but um, and so they had the ability to like buy the different fibers, and buy it in the quantity that we could that we needed. And that kind of alleviated because the sourcing was was actually, to be honest, that was like what was was tripping us up, you know, and it's it's great. It's a you know, I think it's a really nice addition because it's still we're using 50 um, percent what's called Shaniko wool, which is sounds like it's like its own sheep breed, but it's not. It's a company, but they are buying fine wool, primarily wool um, from Reno and Rambouillet sheep from like Oregon, Idaho area. And it's all, they have really um, high standards for their producers, their wool producers. And so both ethically in terms of how the sheep are treated and how they're shorn, and also in terms of environmentally, like how the sheep are raised and how the ranches are managed. And so um, that really fits into our sort of ethos. And so like being able to use that as the wool base, and then they were able to source the um, linen and silk for us. So yeah, that's kind of how it all worked out and made it possible because bringing the creating a new yarn it's not easy and having a bunch of it milled it's expensive so yeah it just that was the that was like sort of the missing key for that specific yarn to actually come into existence i was curious about that you know i sort of understand how you would as a spinner design a yarn but Mm -hmm. when you take that to a mill you know it's not like they they're going to just run off a skein for you what is that process like so we, with Kramer, who makes our Cormo, they do have a smaller set of mill equipment and, and they can run samples, but still, you know, it's still a larger amount. And also they need to, you're right, they're, you know, they need to get it to a point where they can even add twist to it. So they, you know, it needs to be cleaned and it needs to be, you have to make decisions about carding and combing that affect your end product before they can even start sampling for you. And obviously, you don't want to dither a lot and they don't want to spend a lot of time in that part because that's all, you know, it's expensive for them. So what's what's nice in working with Jean is that conceptually, I can say, okay, I think that this is going to be a good product and this is what I think, you know, kind of the target should be. And then the fact that she's um, willing to sit down and, and spin samples, like for her, that's her process is actually can be really helpful because what then she does is she goes and she sends those samples to the mill. So, you know, and I think that helps um, cut down on a little bit of them doing samples, but also 
you know, they can see what you're looking for <laughs> instead of just talking numbers. Because, I mean, you know, unfortunately, um, a lot of the people who own mills, especially the larger mills, they're not hand knitters or even weavers and not hand spinners. So they have this incredible technical knowledge, but it's very separate from us as the end users. And so trying to figure out a way to bridge that gap and talk to them in a way that they understand and that you understand and you reduce the friction and the frustration becomes really key to getting an outcome that that works for both of you. You know, that's been one of the benefits of working with Jean is, you know, she can communicate with them in this kind of way that's maybe a little outside the norm from their perspective, but from us seems very natural. You know, it's not without its issues because even though it's run by machines, all those machines are run by humans. And so, um, like, I just was noticing that this, like, I, I ran off this mini skein and it had some slubs. And then I noticed that, like, the joins were a little bit more obvious. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if they had a new person on the spinning frame. Because it's happened before where if they have new hires especially on the spinning frame, there's X amount of hours that they need experience in order to get really good at like looking at all of the troubleshooting that has to happen. And so sometimes you end up with yarn that has more slabs or has like just more obvious joins. And it's, you know, that's the human factor in it, even though it's still machine made. So, you know, and then you go back to them and sometimes it's just something that you kind of have to live with and you, and you hope that it doesn't, it's like only a little bit of the run or sometimes like we've gone back and we've said, Hey, did you happen to like mistakenly put too much twist in this? Because it's tighter and it's thinner than our previous runs. And it's, it's, and in that classic like hand spun thing of like when you take it off and it's, it's twisting back on itself to release some of that excess energy. Like you'll notice that it's doing that more than it usually does. And lo and behold, it's been true that they've, that they, they either wrote down the wrong numbers or actually they wrote down the right numbers, but they ended up using the wrong numbers. And so we've sent some back and had them actually untwist the yarn a little bit. So, you know, again, it, and that's, you just hope you have a really good relationship with your mill and that you have good communication. And, but again, that's where having that background in spinning too helps. Cause you're like being able to say, Oh, I think this has too much ply twist and can you back it out is this whole other thing. I would never have thought that a mill yeah. would be able to back out ply twist. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, I think that question of uniformity versus handmade, it, there's always some sort of, question there, you know, is it the human touch on the machine? Is it mm -hmm. the, the, the beast or the, or the stock or something like that? And there's something special about having something one of a kind, but then on the other hand, you know, if you, if you want a particular look, you want it to be repeatable. Um, I remember I was talking to a company that wanted to do natural dyes on a, on a wholesale scale. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of difficulty because they were having trouble getting solids, true solids. And that's what they were going for. And I thought, well, geez, that's, <laughs> that's part of the charm, but that's not what they were going for. <laughs> yeah. I remember that there was a larger, I mean, they were still a hand dyer, but they were having, they were, they started out as a synthetic dyer and they wanted to do a whole line of natural dyed and they were really struggling and ended up deciding not to because they had bought a new yarn 
to be able to do this natural dyes, it had more spinning oil in it. And they were used to only scouring so much for their synthetic dyed line. And they weren't really willing to do the scouring necessary in order to get the yarn to the point where then it would take up the dye more evenly and get that sort of solid look that they were going for. Sometimes it's about expectations and personal preference. And yeah, I mean, you know, to my mind, if it's hand dyed, you want to, you want it to look hand dyed. If it's, you know, if it's done, if it's mill dyed, then yeah, uniformity is really what you want. I mean, and so to me, both have their, their benefits, right? There's so many points at which you can have something happen that then can, you know, throw off your process. And, and for certain companies, they don't have the flexibility to be able to, to handle that. And it's just a no-go. So do you think that the speckle trend maybe started that way? Oh, that's a really good question. I kind of wonder if... So since I don't do synthetics... This is completely conjecture, but this is so this is like my outside perspective looking in. The beauty of synthetics is that they are designed to be straightforward to use. That being said, there are definitely parameters that you need in order to successfully dye with synthetics. But as long as you get the pH in the right place and, you know, you rinse it, any excess dye off and, you know, sort of as long as you do those things... You could say that you have died successfully, but it can come out a multitude of ways. And so I think that that's, you know, what's really has let a lot of people kind of dip their toe into yarn dyeing, even on a very small scale, maybe because it feels very approachable and it is very approachable. But it also means that maybe these are people who are, you know, sort of just kind of winging it. Some dyers, you know, pre-mix, they dissolve all of their their synthetic dyes and they do it at a certain concentration. So it's like all at a 1% concentration. So they know if they use this volume, it's going to be this amount. And it's and so that they can kind of maybe they're not necessarily going for repeatability in terms from dye lot, but they at least have consistency in the depth of color, or the depth of shade of the dye that they're working with. So it's like knowing it's like it's like a painter knowing what color to expect when they dip their paint into that that paint pot. But maybe, you know, somebody just was like, well, what happens if I put dry dye in my dye pot? What happens. The reason why I kind of think that it might be somebody with less experience is because experienced synthetic dyers typically are very aware of needing to um, be careful about dry synthetic dyes and the sort of health risks. They mix up their dyes first and it's all done with a respirator on and they make sure that then they, you know, clean up their area afterwards so that nobody's inhaling that dye. Because, you know, it's often you know, the case where you're kind of told to, you know, be very wary of using the dry dye. And so I just, that's why I kind of am guessing that it might've been somebody with a little less experience or maybe didn't have somebody to show them like, or talk to them about like, you know, some of these considerations. And so they just kind of did it without, you know, being too worried about it. And, you know, hopefully everybody that's doing speckling is wearing respirators and is being very careful. And, and it's fun. I mean, you know, it's something that as a natural dyer, I can't exactly do, but it's been fun for me. It's been a fun challenge for me to like try and recreate some of that looks through, I essentially do eco printing on dye on yarn. So, you know, where it's, so it's a direct application 
with either cochineal bugs or petals, flower petals. And so to kind of recreate that speckled look, obviously it's not the same, but it kind of has the same flavor. I enjoy it. I think it's fun to like look at what synthetic dyers are doing and think about it from a natural dyer perspective and think like, oh, how would I approach that? Probably people made them a variety of different times and and one time it looked really good and took off. Repeating it would be difficult, but you know, speaking of safety, I remember somebody had told me once and I repeated to you, oh, but you know, natural dyes are not all that safe. And you you had to explain to me that actually you are very careful about that sort of thing. Well, and you know, I think we all need to be safe, right? We all need to, there are things that we know about and we know to be cautious about and things that we don't consider so much. Like, you know, like a lot of our cleaning products are really pretty, can be pretty toxic. I mean, thankfully there's a lot more options on the market now, but what's interesting about natural dyes is that you know what's in them because they're kind of broken out into their components. So, you know, yeah, I use all alum for my morning process. So there are metals and synthetics and you can get the material data safety sheets and you can find out what's in them. And they're going to be, and it's going to be like in really super small quantities, potentially some of those metals that like we as natural dyers kind of avoid using, but you don't necessarily know what's like in your synthetic dyes because they're already, they're made in a lab. And whereas like, if you're, you know, say you're, you're marigold dyeing, you're like, okay, well, I've got my yarn and I'm using water and I used alum to, to mordant it. And then I'm making marigold tea <laughs> and then I'm putting my yarn in the marigold tea and that's it. And, you know, like alum is used in, at least in my area, as a flocculant in our water processing. So basically what it does is it attracts something that they're trying to remove from the water. So, you know, and it's also used in baking. And and that doesn't mean that, like, you then should, like, wholesale, like, bathe in it or breathe it. Like, dust is not good to breathe. You know, flour is not good to breathe. You know, we need to be very mindful and cautious about these things. And like nowadays, I don't think there's anybody who's like seriously using chrome as a Morton. If you have a, like, you know, background in chemistry and you understand you have all the, 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 the techniques and the know-how and the equipment to be able to safely use it. And then also how to dispose of it. Cause that's, that's a big piece of it too then, you know, it's on you. But like, it used to be like in the 70s, that chrome was just a really common mordant that was just one of many. And so, you know, modern attitudes and knowledge have changed and sort of, but I think that you have to actively mordant. And so you're, you're actively working with, you know, um, alum, which is potassium aluminum sulfate, typically, um, or aluminum acetate, if you're using cellulose. Um, means that people are kind of thinking about it more actively as opposed to like in the case of synthetics, they're like, it's like, oh, it's just this dye and I'm just using this dye. It's Kool-Aid. Right, exactly. It's Kool-Aid and it's, you know, (laughs) it's okay to drink it. So, you know, and so they don't really think about like what's in it. When you are, you know, say making a marigold tea, Mm -hmm. do you just have to make a massive batch in order to get all the yarn that you need through it? Because you don't, I don't see you necessarily wholesaling, but you have a booth that is full of yarn and you have more than one or two skeins of each color. How do you do that? So I do, I do, you're right. I do a little bit of wholesaling, but, but in general, natural dyeing is pretty labor intensive. Like it is labor intensive and it's physically 
pretty demanding, especially if you use raw dye, dye materials. Say you're trying to extract color from um, logwood chips. Well, you might simmer those and then leave them overnight. And then you've got to, you know, you need to get rid of all of those chips because you don't want to have all of that get into the yarn. When you're working with raw materials, you need to filter it a lot. And so one of the ways to filter it is using these these incredible mesh filters that are designed for biodiesel, for, particularly like think for home use, people who are doing biodiesel at home, because they're designed to fit into the top of five gallon buckets. And you you need to go from like a more open weave mesh to a much finer. And you can imagine that like water's heavy, right? And so the reality is, is that when I'm doing large batches, I'm using extracts because physically I have to think about the longevity of me being able to, I mean, I've, I'm so next year I'll have been in business for 20 years. And so, and I'm, I'm strong and like, and part of the reason why I'm strong is because of, I'm a natural dyer, but between sort of the time that's necessary to do all of that and do all of that straining, cause it just takes a long time, especially once the, the mesh gets really fine, it takes a really long time for the, the liquid to go through. Um, and also just the physicality of it. So, because I'm not a big dye house, so I don't have all these like custom made setup where I can just like open a tap and have it, you know, get filtered through. No, this is me picking up buckets of liquid. So that's why, you know, so I do use raw materials. So like if I'm doing like the speckled yarn, obviously all of that is with raw materials. And then um, I will for certain colors use raw dye stuffs if that's what I need to do. But, you know, I sort of pick and choose what I'm doing because I have to think about my body, frankly. Um, and cause even still as it is yarn, wool yarn soaks up a lot of, of water and it gets very heavy and, you know, water dye pots, I'm using big dye pots and they are very heavy. And so, you know, I have to think about sort of how to be nice to myself sure. physically. How do you come up with different colors? When I walk into your booth, as somebody who just tiny dabbles in natural dye, I think about it from the dye stuff. I think about what is this and what am I going to put together? But when I walk into your booth, it's much more, I see it much more as a knitter in terms of these are the colors and you have just these incredible greens and, and green is, takes a knack for a natural dyer. I mean, it, with cochineal, you can get a red and with indigo, you can get a blue and for a green like that, you have to you have to work at it. So how do you develop the colors that are in your palette, your line? When I teach, I tell people, you know, you got to know your yellows. I mean, that's kind of what it boils down to, if you, especially for if you like green, you got to know your yellows. Because most often you're going to be using indigo. And yeah, we as Americans, because we like jeans, blue jeans, we're kind of very familiar with that stereotypical indigo blue. Even though that's synthetic, that's still indigo. And for me, I always start with that, like all like my greens and my purples that are based in indigo. I always die with my indigo first. Um, that's just my personal preference. And so I, I think about those colors as, OK, what's my base blue? And then I think about, OK, well, now now where am I going in terms of like, am I going to what kind of yellow am I going to use? Am I going to use a warm yellow or a cool yellow or like a clear yellow or kind of a dirty yellow? Or am I going to add something else to it? You know, it's kind of going back to that idea of, you know, painter knowing what to expect. That is what 20 years gets me 
is kind of having that mental catalog of generally knowing what to expect. The curveball here is that these are natural dyes. And even if I'm using extracts, they still vary, you know, from year to year, from batch to batch, from harvest to harvest, they, they vary. Plus my water changes because I use almost exclusively my tap water. And I, I kind of know the variation that happens. Like if there's an algae bloom, that's going to happen in the summer. And so when I'm thinking about a color, I'm sort of mentally playing around with different dyes. And then I, and then I'll actually put it onto um, yarn on a small quantity. And then I scale it up because a little bit like, you know, food and restaurants, there are dishes that work when you're doing it individually. Like you can make it for two or four people and it comes out perfectly, but it may not work when you try to scale it up and have to put it in a, in a restaurant, you know, kitchen situation. And that can be the, the case. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm really drawing on a lot of years of experience here. It's my experience and it's my environmental situation, my water, my, the plants and how they were grown, you know, or like what wool I'm putting it on. Those are the factors that make it different. And so with, you know, with synthetics, you can kind of plug and play. It's like, okay, they're kind of all, you know, they're made so that you can dilute them. You can dissolve them and have them be at a percentage and, and be really consistent about it. That's what they're designed to do. And I joke that you could write like um, profiles, like dating profiles for each die because they all have their own likes and dislikes. You know, it's, you know, some of them like a, an alkaline situation, some like an acid situation, or you can monkey around with that to get different colors. And so, you know, you have to get to know all of your different dyes because even if you know them individually, then when you go to, con- to, to combine them, Sometimes they play well together and sometimes they don't. And so that's the other factor that you're like bringing to it. It's like, okay, so I know that you like this and you like that. But then if I put you in the pot together, will you work? And sometimes the answer is no. And so, and, and then you have to make a decision. It's like, well, do I want to keep going down this road? And it, now it's become a two-step process where I have to dye it, you know, first this color. And then in order to get the final color, I'm going to over dye it in this other dye, because that's the way I can achieve this color. I can't get them to play nicely in the pot together. And again, you know, yeah, it's frustrating and it's complicated and it's, you know, maybe not efficient, but it's what keeps it interesting. Now, do you just have in mind, I think I need a pink in this color. I think I need a green in this color. How do you sort of plan out what, what colors you're going to offer? Well, I mean, I definitely, you can see my, preferences, I think in my color palette that I choose, like I, it's really rare that I do anything that's pastel. Um, even though in some ways it would be easier and it, and it would be less expensive because I would be using less dye and it would probably wash out faster, but that's just not really my, my preference. I tend to go from, for medium to dark depth of shades. So, um, so like more jewel tones and, but, and then, you know, green is one of my favorite colors. So I'm always monkeying around with greens and uh, like, yes, I, I do try to take into account um, other people's palettes, but I'm, I'm still always, you know, my finger's still always in there. You know what I mean? So, um, but I do, I try to push myself and look at where I look at holes. I do remember this was quite a few years ago at this point, but I was like, you know, there's that sort of black red that synthetic dyers can get. 
And I was like, you know, I'm really, I'm really interested in that color. And so black, just black, black is very difficult to do with natural dyes, but it's not super easy to like shade things exactly, shade colors exactly with natural dyes and, and without really changing the, the tone, the sort of like base tone of it. And so, you know, I, I just remember I, I said this to, um, to my friend at the time. And I was like, you know, I'm really just interested in this color that I'd, I'd, I'd like to try and kind of figure out how to do it. And then I didn't really actively work on it like with any intention. I wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to try out like five different recipes and see how to do this. But lo and behold, basically within a few months, I had actually like sort of had that, I had that answer. I had the sort of natural dyed version of that color that I was looking for. So sometimes I, you know, it's just, yeah, I look at it and I'm like, oh, I really like that color. And then my sometimes I'm actively working on trying to figure out how that that how I'm going to make that color. And sometimes it's my brain passively just sort of like, you know, chugging away on it until I'm I'm ready to like actually like put dye on yarn. And, and then it's like, oh, OK, here it is. I am very interested in color. And so and I think I'm always both passively and actively paying attention to the colors around me and the colors in nature. And that serves as an inspiration. I mean, it is natural dyes are really good. They're a great way to translate what you see. So, you know, yeah, it it really varies. And, you know, I, I do clubs too. So, and those are great ways to like push me outside of my envelope too, because I have to come up with new things because I have, I have, I'm really lucky. I have people who've been in my club for years. And so like, I don't want to repeat myself and I do colors that are not my standard colors too. So I'm, I'm always kind of, you know, trying to push myself and, and, um, either do things that are like, not what I would like necessarily pick for myself or play around with different techniques or both, you know, and, and see what I come up with. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of that opportunity. So speaking of clubs, I mean, you have a club that's really California based. I was thinking about what you said about your water makes a difference and how you're so tied to where you live in that. You have a lot of California connections. Oh, yeah. I mean, I moved back to Berkeley in 01. And it's been really fun to see how the, you know, sort of fiber community has, like, there's always obviously been knitters and crocheters and spinners and weavers. We have, you know, well-established guilds in the Bay Area. Um, But in terms of, like, fiber production and really that connection between, because we also have always had producers, but sort of being able to, you know, um, see how the connection between the two has come back, um, has been really exciting. And, you know, now we have two mills. Um, like we, we, we had one, um, which was, uh, Yola wool mill. And so they were existing. They predated me starting my business. That's who I started out with. And then now it's, it was, um, sold to Mercale and now it's Valley Oak, but that's the same, that's the same mill. Um, so it's, it's, you know, pretty incredible that that has, they've managed to survive this whole time and that they've been a resource. Um, and now we have Menda wool mill and they're up in Ukiah and they're doing, you know, incredible stuff. And then I use Sherry. She's in Morro Bay. She does incredible. She doesn't make yarn. So she's the one who makes all my roving for me and she just does an incredible job. So, you know, I've been around long enough and, that I've gotten to know people and people have developed their businesses also in those over the 20 years. So, and then I really have purposely tried to 
um, you know, put my money where my mouth is and um, work with these mills or work with farmers or work with, you know, even for my clubs, I buy, I call them goodies that I send in addition with the yarn. So sometimes it's, you know, tools, notions, it could be um, soaps. Um, it could be like, I also oftentimes will buy like something ceramic pieces. So either mugs or bowls, um, bag makers. And so I'm trying to, and I, and I always have a designer that I'm working with every quarter too. And so again, I just try to vote with my dollars and cause that's how our businesses survive is that we support each other from my perspective. Like if we want to have California, if we want to have California mills, we have to work with California mills. We can't say we want California mills and then work with mills in Peru or something like that. That doesn't work. You know, so you can do both, but you can't just say you want one thing and then not support them financially. That just doesn't work. So, yeah, I mean, um, so, you know, I feel like I have, you know, connections, across the US. But yes, I'm also I'm very much, you know, I'm in California, I go to shows in California, I meet farmers in California, I buy wool in California, like I use mills in California, I use mills elsewhere too. But you know, and so it is it's my it's my home base. So a lot natural dyes, to a certain extent are always a reflection of the location. Even if your dyes are internationally sourced, which they often are, the fact that if you're using local water, (laughs) You are a reflection of your local place. Um, where I lived before I moved to, to Napa, which is where I live now, I lived up in St. Lena and I, I could not do, I had a really hard time doing indigo and I actually, and a couple other colors because of the water there. And so um, like the indigo, I still use um, filtered water for even now, which is what I started doing up there. But there were even certain colors I struggled to do up there because the water was just that different. So, yeah, I mean, you just can't get away from it. You are, you're a product of your location. I was wondering about that. Do you use city water or are you on well water? I'm on city water. Okay. Which is, you know, helpful because I think it does smooth, smooth out some of the bumps. Um, and also like you have lower mineral content because they factor in, they're kind of trying to keep it within a certain range. Um, and cause like if you have high iron content, Say, um, yeah, you you now have a very specific palette that you can't get away from unless you go to filtered water. So, yeah, so I'm so I'm it's nice that I have city water because it gives me a little bit more flexibility, frankly. Our city water often has a lot of chlorine in it. I don't know if that's does that make a big difference for you? Yeah. You know, so when when there's algae blooms, they up the amount of chlorine and um, it can have a. I hate to say negative because it's not like it's, I can't do certain things, but I would say negative because I feel like I don't get the colors that I expect. Um, So yeah, it can. And, but you know, uh, uh, like I'm natural dyeing is kind of a slow process. And so sometimes you're filling up a, you know, uh, a vat and then it's sitting out and you're heating it up and that helps to like um, get rid of some of the chlorine too. So it, you know, it's not like you're going so fast that like, you're like, Oh, I'm going to fill this up with cold water. And then I'm immediately doing this. And I mean, I'm immediately moving on. So I I think that helps mitigate a little bit of that, but, but yeah. And if there's a significant change, it absolutely, I can always tell, I don't always know what it is, but I can always tell that something happened. And I mean, I know that some areas have very acidic or more, more alkaline water. And if you moved, you would have to start all over. Yeah. It would, it would change my, it would change my palate to a certain extent. Um, 
Darlene, I can't remember what her last name is, but Hand Jive um, Yarns, Darlene Hayes, 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 you got it. Darlene Hayes, she's in my area. She moved and she had to completely change her her palette for exactly that reason, because her water changed so significantly. It's definitely more of a grassroots feeling that I think a lot of us don't necessarily remember. You know, but this idea of the fiber shed movement Mm -hmm. or, you know, having strong regional roots... It's great to have it. And yet I, being from away, I'm still really glad that you have it there. And if I go to, you know, New Mexico and I do something there, it's that sort of web of, you know, it used to be that if you went to, say, France, you had to make sure that you got your particular hand cream there. And now they've opened up a store in Grand Central Terminal. Right. Great to get the hand cream. Not special anymore. You know, and that's the funny thing is that, like, textiles in general, but dyes in particular, have always been international. Just way, way slower and way, way, way more expensive, right? But that being said, just because textiles in general, dyes in specific, are international doesn't mean that there isn't value to regionality and to being supportive of regional, you know, fiber sheds or however you want to 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 talk about it. And because the thing about it is that there are people behind, like that's, that's, I think part of what the difference is, is that, so when we have regional um, fiber systems, um, we have farmers and we have, you know, so both that grow wool or alpaca wool or llama wool or cashmere, we have natural dye farmers they're few and far between, but we do have some, you know, we have artisans and yeah, maybe you don't necessarily have them everywhere, but they are like, I mean, the reality is, is that they are, they just may be in such a small quantity that they haven't necessarily banded together and, you know, call themselves a, like a, say a fiber shed um, yet. And, but it's of value to seek them out because Again, it kind of goes back to that whole idea of, you know, voting with your dollars. Like you, you, you're supporting individuals, you're supporting people, you're supporting small businesses, you're supporting, you know, farmers, you're supporting agriculture, people who, you know, live in these communities and care about the land and, you know, send their kids to school there and, you know, just have real, they're really invested in that community. And you have this incredible way of making a a direct impact on them by purchasing from them directly, even if you're outside of their community. And um, that to me has value. There is no way we could go back to doing only natural dyes for all of our textiles that we currently use. So I have, I do not want to throw any shade on synthetic, you know, dyes, but synthetic dyes are made by big companies. They are made by companies like Bayer. And so that is a big corporation. So you buy it, you buy dye from them and you are buying from Bear. And again, fine. You know, if you can buy yarn from a small producer, that single purchase, even if you feel like, well, I only bought a skein. Oh my gosh, that single skein has, you know, has this sort of outsized impact on them in a way that it doesn't when you purchase from a very large yarn company. Do we need large yarn companies? Sure we do. Do they have value? Absolutely. There's, you know, they have their place too. But 
it's important to recognize and understand like your place as a consumer and your place as a maker and your place as a, as a, you know, a a cheerleader, like you don't have to, there's a lot of ways to support different communities, different fiber communities without even, you know, spending money, like just by recommending them to other friends, by signing up for their newsletters, by, you know, retweeting or, you know, posting things on Instagram and, and, you know, essentially marketing for them. That has, again, it has this sort of outsized effect for them in a way that it doesn't for these larger, you know, larger corporations. It's kind of amazing the impact that, you know, consumers can have on us. As, like we, we, for as big as our, as our industry is, we still have a lot of people that make up this industry that are small. And you as an individual have a lot of power. I think even for people who are really steeped in the fiber world, it can almost be easier to think about it in terms of food to some extent that just like, you know, we couldn't necessarily all get our carrots from down the road. There's still a lot of value to that. There's value to having heritage, heritage breed animals and to go into a mom and pop shop. You know, if you know, maybe you go to Starbucks one day, maybe you go to the guy who roasts his own beans the next day and having heritage from a variety of different places that is distinct and yet accessible. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, it's hard because like price point is an issue, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's no joke, you know? Um, And the, and your parallels to food is, you know, so apt and, um, and it's all agricultural based, right? I mean, that's the reality is I think that we, have become more disconnected with textiles as an agricultural um, product. They still are, um, unless they're some completely synthetic. Unfortunately, our budget doesn't go as far. But in terms of like the like, you might be able to only afford one skein of you know a small producer as opposed to being able to purchase maybe three from somebody else. But the impact that you have is so great that it's, you know, if you can, as you say, sort of mix in those purchases, even if it's not like, don't kick yourself over. I mean, this is not something that you to like browbeat yourself over. There are much more important things to be, you know, seriously considering, you know, this day and age, but you know, if you can sort of consciously say, oh, you know, I I remember hearing about so-and-so. I'm going to buy this hand dyer or this small farm producer. I'm going to use a larger part of my budget to do that. Then I think that's an important consideration. It depends on what your values are. And if, if it doesn't matter to you, then it doesn't matter. That's like, that's, everybody has their perspective. If having local, essentially local yarn producers, if that's not something that they value, then that's fine. But if you do, if you, if that is something that you want to have to continue, if you want to have hand dyers, you know, if you want to have, um, bag makers, if you want to have accessory makers that are individuals and small, bringing awareness and sort of an intentionality to how you spend your budget, every purchase that you make, I, I'm here to tell you has a direct impact. And, you know, showing your local yarn store. So first of all, supporting your local yarn store so that they can continue to survive and also say and showing them that you want to have those local products or those, 
unique products instead of them just buying, you know, the same thing that everybody else buys um, is really important. And you really do have that power as a consumer. I mean, that that is, I think, what is so striking to me about our industry, just like, you know, going to the farmer's market. Like I went to the farmer's market it was a rainy day and I was like, Oh, I kind of don't want to go. But I was like, you know what? I know that less people are going to go because it's rainy and I really do want those strawberries. And I'm, so I made it a point to like, you know, go and my son and I went and we got totally soaked. And, but you know, it's, you know, you like sort of bringing some of that intentionality and awareness when you can and you have the ability to, I think is really important. And again, there's a lot of ways to be able to support people without spending money. Too. And, you know, in terms of like marketing and recommending, and especially this day and age with social media, it's, you know, or going to your um, knit night and being like, hey, I went to, you know, I went to this festival and I saw these people and they, I, you know, I wasn't able to purchase anything, but man, they had cool stuff. You should check them out. Or going to your local yarn shop and saying, hey, you know, I saw this this person. I'm not sure whether or not they wholesale or not, but wow, it was gorgeous. And I think they would fit right in here and they're local or whatever, you know, just that kind of stuff. It really does make a difference. You know, it's interesting because we're, we're really talking about values and the kind of world we want to live in. At the same time, when I go to a festival and I walk into your booth, the kind of world I want to live in is right there because the fiber is soft and the colors are beautiful and the soap that you have there, I feel like I'm being led around like, ooh, where, where's, okay, this is the good place. It smells like, you know, lavender and sage. And okay, I'm going to hang out here. <laughs> so. Well, you and I were talking about this earlier, like whether or not it's intentional on my part. And I, I can't really totally cop to it being totally intentional. I think I just... I've created a space that I want to spend. I mean, I have to be there for hours on end. So I might as well pick a space, like create a space that I enjoy. And I also think that natural dye is just really like, you know, we've only been living with synthetic colors since, you know, the mid 1800s. So we have, you know, we have thousands of years under our belt as a, as a human race with natural dyes. It really kind of jives with us as human beings to be around natural dyes. Like, not to get too woo-woo about it, but the reality is, is it's just like, that's what we're kind of used to, you know, just historically. And, um, and they're just, they tend to just be kind of, I think, calmer colors in general. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I really, again, I vote with my dollars. I, I have stuff from people that I, you know, think have, do really amazing things, they, high quality, you know, and just, I try to support them too. And then, and, and then, you know, get to expose everybody else to them. I'm like, I think this, you know, hand balm is really awesome. You, maybe you like it too. <laughs> Here it is, you know? And so I find that really exciting to be able to, you know, cause this is a, it's a community and I want, I believe in a rising tide lifts all boats and I want us all to succeed. And so I want to show my friends off to my customers and my customers who are friends. I want, you know, them to have access to these wonderful things. So my booth is a little slice of that. What I think really drives what I do is it's about connection and and so it's both, and that, that comes down to community. That's personal connection. That's interpersonal connection. That's with people. Um, that really feels, fills my cup. And then there's also just like the, the sort of like connection to history and to, um, the rest of the world. Like we all do textiles. We all put color on textiles. We all want to dye our, we want to wear color. We want to be surrounded by color. We, we crave that and we do it even though it's expensive, it's time consuming. And, you know, it's, 
not necessarily efficient. It would be more efficient if we just wore undyed clothing all the time. Right. But we want to adorn ourselves and we want to color what we, what we live, you know, what we surround ourselves with. And so, and we have historically for thousands of years. And to me, that is what is so like rich about what we do. It's a, it is, we are humans and we are connected by this drive and this desire. And, um, both now and in the past and going forward. And, and to me, it is fascinating that like what we do um, is in some ways so simple and so basic and yet so complicated and was the genesis of things like the computer, you know, and, and, and it's being used in like super high tech industries. What we do, I mean, that to me is super satisfying because it spans both the, the, the basic and the complicated and the, you know, and it just, and it's really affirming because it is, it is such a shared love, desire, drive, you know? So while kind of what I do is unique, it's also not like (laughs) I'm doing something that, you know, we have done for thousands of years and that, you know, we will continue to do and that we all want to to have and do to a certain extent, you know, and it's no less special because of the fact that it is a commonality among all of us. Maybe that's a very uh, zoomed out view of it. But ultimately, that is like I said, you know, that is, you know, really where a lot of the drive comes from is just that that connection. That is that thread. Yes. There's a reason why thread and yarn is such a metaphor for us because it really is a very it's it's a link, it's a connection. It's apt. It's totally apt. Even for people who don't have any connection to textiles, they do because they sleep in sheets and they wear clothes and you know, they interact with it all the time. And so it's fascinating to me how disconnected we are and yet how connected we continue to be to textiles, you know. I, and I think the importance of textiles shows in how, you know, linguistically also like words having to do with textiles, you know, permeate <laughs> on all levels and you know, turns of phrases that we use and you know, yes, agreed. And maybe that's why, you know, stepping into your booth is so sort of primally satisfying. It feels kind of like coming home because it's that, you know, here we are with our fiber and our color and our and our nature. And mm-hmm. I'm just really grateful that you are now able to kind of come and share that. Because as much as I love following along on your website, the ability to, you know, see you on the road and actually, you know, touch the fiber in person is such an experience that I'm, I'm glad that I get to have again. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we're all <laughs> thrilled to be in person again. And, you know, and everybody who has to like make websites to sell their stuff, it's always a challenge to take pictures that accurately rep- reflect like what it is that you're trying to sell. I think natural dyes are really hard to take accurate photographs of because depending on the light, they, they really shift a lot. And then, Oh my gosh, like yarn is so tactile. Like you you can't really, there's no substitute for touching it. So yeah, I mean, I think that everybody it, like is so super excited because as you say, there really is no substitute for shopping in person, you know, or, you know, just even if you're not ready to buy, like just getting to experience it in person, it's just really, it's pleasing, it's edifying and it's satisfying, you know? So I am happy to be out on the road again. <laughs> And there are cute sheep totes, too. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's all those, like, other fringe benefits, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Brooke, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so glad to see you on the road and I look forward to the next one. Yes, me too. Thank you. Thanks to Trainway Silks and Handweaving.net for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. Thanks again.